Hello members and anyone listening on the podcast and welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials. We're just going to continue right where we left off. As the political landscape changed, so too was the legal system. Initially the courts favoured women, a response to the wrongful conviction and execution of so many accused witches. For several years after the trials, not a single Essex County woman was convicted of a crime by a jury. However, women had been the key players and leading witnesses in legal proceedings that had gone horribly wrong. Now men would dominate the courtroom. Scholars have found that by around 1700, for example, a double standard involving sex crimes had set in throughout New England. Men refused to plead guilty to any sex crime other than sex with their wives prior to marriage. This was a crime of fornification at the time, a charge normally made against both husband and wife when the full-term firstborn child would arrive sooner than the obvious marriage. All male juries almost invariably refused to convict men of any sex crime other than incest. Women now appeared rarely in court. If they did so, as a victim of a sex crime, they generally faced humiliation and a disappointing verdict. There had been a slight double standard prior to 1692, with men sometimes getting preferential treatment. Afterward, there was a wide gulf in how men and women fared when it came to accusations of rape and incest. Laws would change as well, and in such a way to prevent another witchcraft outbreak. In December 1692, the General Court passed an act that made practising magic punishable only by imprisonment and the pillory, unless the magic was used to commit murder. This act reflects a desire for latitude in the punishment for witches expressed by Cotton Mather in his letter to Riches on May 31, 1692. In 1703, the General Court passed a law invalidating spectral evidence. In England, Parliament would finally decriminalise witchcraft in 1736. Other new laws were passed, and while they had nothing to do directly with witchcraft, they alleviated the conditions that had precipitated the Salem outbreak. In 1697, the Massachusetts General Court would pass a law that guaranteed a sure title to any land owned without challenge from 1692 to 1704. In 1698, the General Court passed a law that called for far stricter regulation of land and for enforcement of an owner's responsibility to maintain fences for pastures and fields. Together, the two laws would go a long way toward eliminating neighbourly disputes over property boundaries and trespassing livestock, key factors in many court cases, including witchcraft accusations, because, you know, when uh, animals did trespass onto other people's property or something like that, it was usually brought up in witchcraft trials. It's usually what brought them to the trials in the first place, you know, it was neighbourly arguments. Most people increasingly questioned the existence of witches, and those magistrates who still believed in sorcerers failed to find sufficient legal evidence to convict them. No American court would ever again execute a witch after 1692, and witchcraft prosecutions came to an abrupt halt in New England. Winifred Benham of Wallingford, Connecticut, was accused of witchcraft in 1697, with the only spectral evidence put forward the court acquitted her. Interestingly, the last American trial for the capital crime of witchcraft occurred in Virginia in 1706, when Grace Sherwood of Princess Anne County faced charges. The verdict does not survive, but presumably she was acquitted, as her death is recorded as taking place 34 years later. 
1730, a Richmond County, Virginia woman was the last person convicted of practising white magic when she was found guilty of enchantment charm, witchcraft or conjuration to tell where treasure is or where goods left may be found. Under the English witchcraft statute of 1604, this lesser crime was punishable by a year in prison and public confession of her sins. Virginia magistrates reduced the punishment to 39 lashes of the whipping post. While the court refused to convict witches, the general population continued to believe in their existence. With no recourse available in the courts, people sought protection in folk magic and counter magic. Most New England homes of the 18th and even the 19th centuries were given some sort of protection from witches and evil. Shoes that could catch evil spirits as they came down chimneys were buried in the walls next to the hearths. Coins placed under dorsals, carved daisy wheels, a series of arcs cut within a circle with a compass to resemble a flower, and a range of other talismans continued to be used to ward off evil, as they had before 1692. Many such objects still lie buried in homes awaiting discovery during renovation or restoration. Witchcraft accusations would show up from time to time in the court records of New England, usually cases of slander brought by those accused of being a witch. For example, in 1725, Sarah Keane, after years of innuendo and accusations from her kittery neighbours, finally sued John Spinney for slander. Perhaps the most interesting testimony came from Sarah Keane's son, Nathaniel. He said that he asked Spinney what made him say that my mother had bewitched him and rode him up from the eastward. Spinney retorted that he never claimed he had been transported from East Main settlements, presumably by Broom, we have to say, by Sarah Keane, rather a nerish. An Irish woman rode me up that lives at the Eastwood. Several witnesses confirmed that Spinney did indeed claim to have ridden with Sarah Keane and that he told people Keane had been a witch for many years. The dispositions shows that as late as the 1720s, people still associated witchcraft with the eastward, an extreme of the frontier, though by that time the frontier was well east of Kittery. Also, outsiders such as Irish remained likely candidates for witchcraft accusations. Several years earlier, a colony of Scot-Irish immigrants had established small settlements on Casco Bay and on the lower Kennebec River, at the time the very edge of the English frontier in Maine. Perhaps these immigrants had made an impression on Spinney during a voyage to the eastward. By 1725, many of the Scot-Irish had to abandon their frontier as another war had erupted between the settlers and the Native Americans. Keane's slander case is one of many that make it clear that traditional beliefs, ranging from the witch's teeth and riding on brooms, to the fear of foreigners and the dangers of the frontier, were still very much alive in the 18th century. Indeed, Belief in witchcraft died very slowly in New England, as late as 1796. Four women and a man from Arundel, Maine, were tried for beating and attempting to murder a woman for witchcraft. The victim, an elderly widow named Elizabeth Smith, stood accused by one John Hilton of afflicting him. The four women and Hilton attacked Smith, severely beating her and threatened to kill her. Smith was obliged to flee to a neighbouring town to safety. When brought before the Court of General Sessions of the Peace in nearby Bideford, or Bideford, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, in November 1796, the judge tried to reason with the group. 
The newspaper reported that the judge endeavoured to convince them of the gross error in which they had fallen, and the difficulties and dissensions in the neighbourhood arose rather from ignorance in themselves than from witchcraft in the poor old woman. The defendants were bound to keep the peace until the following summer, and the incident quietly disappeared. Had the case been tried before the Court of Iron Terminary in 1692, the result might have been very different. When reprinting the story for the Eastern Gazette and Herald of Maine, the editor of Polar Star and Boston Daily Advertiser could not resist adding a rejoinder. The above law case is a melancholy proof that the monster superstition has not entirely disappeared from this country. In the most bigoted countries, even in the dominions of the Pope, the tales of witchcraft are silenced. How come is that in the bosom of decrim democratic republic founded on reason and information there should exist ignorance so profound zeal so fanatical as to be willing to introduce the auto de fe executions the burnings of portugal and the inquisition the shifting attitudes about the existence of witchcraft signalled deeper spiritual changes as puritan beliefs continued to evolve yet while scepticism was on the rise people did not necessarily become less pious the witch trials actually reinvigorated the campaign for moral reformation first called for in the Reforming Synod of 1679. Many become increasingly interested in pursuing their individual religious experience instead of communal covenant devotions and, you know, having to come together. January 1693, Cotton Mather would, for the first time, welcome new members to the North Church under the Halfway Covenant, as John Richards had finally yielded. Perhaps this was the elderly judge's personal atonement for the witch trials, though Richards never recorded any statements or expressed any sentiments about the trials before his death on April 2nd, 1694. Facing declining membership and even the inability to attract a minister, most of the Puritan churches that had resisted the halfway covenant now decided to accept it. Dedham, for example, went from 1685 to 1692 without a minister, only managing to land one after the halfway covenant was adopted. The witch trials had contributed to a loosening of Puritan church discipline. Before 1692, discipline records are clock full of censors issued for a variety of offences. Such censors virtually disappeared from the records of the First Church of Salem following the excommunication of Rebecca Nurse and Giles Corey. Other churches followed suit. Excommunications effectively ceased, and censors were limited to clear-cut cases, mostly involving sexual offences and drunkenness. Thanks to the witch trials, it became far less clear when one could be considered guilty of a religious offence, and churches much preferred, preferred to err on the side of leniency. The conflict in Salem and the trials has served a warning to churches to avoid controversial disciplinary actions that might lead to community divisions. The witch trials who helped to banish the devil from New England. Ministers stopped talking about Satan, the tempter roaming the earth in corporal form, and instead talked about how he waited in the horrible fires of hell for sinners. As part of the growing focus on the individual people increasingly took personal responsibility for their sins. And while the devil threatened their salvation, many increasingly came to believe that they could resist his enticements. Only during the Great Awakening in 1730s would the devil reappear in conversation narratives and ministers' sermons. And that is the next part of the 
Salem witch trials. Extremely political, as you can see from this step forward and shows you all the changes that kind of took place in these times now. So, you know, you have to be really interested in this stuff to want to learn it and I can appreciate that. Me, I like history, so I kind of like stuff like this. Thank you for listening to this part and many blessings.